Chapter Six of Fighting the Whales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Fighting the Whales by R. M. Ballantyne. Chapter Six: The Whale, Fighting Bowls, etc. As the reader may perhaps have been asking a few questions about the whale in his own mind, I shall try to answer them by telling a few things concerning that creature which I think are worth knowing. In the first place, the whale is not a fish. I have applied that name to it, no doubt because it is the custom to do so, but there are great differences between the whales and the fishes. The mere fact that the whale lives in water is not sufficient to prove it to be a fish. The frog lives very much in water. He is born in the water, and when very young he lives in it altogether, would die, in fact, if he were taken out of it. Yet a frog is not a fish. The following are some of the differences existing between a whale and a fish. The whale is a warm-blooded animal. The fish is cold-blooded. The whale brings forth its young alive, while most fishes lay eggs or spawn. Moreover, the fish lives entirely under water, but the whale cannot do so. He breathes air through enormous lungs, not gills. If you were to hold a whale's head under water for much longer than an hour, it would certainly be drowned, and this is the reason why it comes so frequently to the surface of the sea to take breath. Whales seldom stay more than an hour under water, and when they come up to breathe, they discharge the last breath they took through their nostrils or blowholes, mixed with large quantities of water which they have taken in while feeding. But the most remarkable point of difference between the whale and the fishes of all kinds is that it suckles its young. The calf of one kind of whale is about fourteen feet long when it's born, and it weighs about a ton. The cow whale usually has only one calf at a time, and the manner in which she behaves to her gigantic baby shows that she is affected by feelings of anxiety and affection, such are never seen in fishes, which heartless creatures forsake their eggs when they are laid, and I am pretty sure they would not know their own children if they happened to meet with them. The whale, on the contrary, takes care of her little one, gives it suck, and sports playfully with it in the waves, its enormous heart throbbing all the while, no doubt, with satisfaction. I have heard of a whale which was once driven into shoal water with its calf and nearly stranded. The huge dam seemed to become anxious for the safety of her child, for she was seen to swim eagerly around it, embrace it with her fins, and roll it over in the waves, trying to make it follow her into deep water. But the calf was obstinate. It would not go, and the result was that the boat of a whaler pulled up and harpooned it. The poor little whale darted away like lightning on receiving the terrible iron, and ran out a hundred fathoms of line, but it was soon overhauled and killed. All this time the dam kept close to the side of its calf, and not until a harpoon was plunged into her own side would she move away. Two boats were after her. With a single wrap of her tail she cut one of the boats in two, and then darted off. But in a short time she turned and came back. Her feelings of anxiety had returned, no doubt, after the first sting of pain was over, and she died at last close to the side of her young one. There are various kinds of whales, but the two sorts that are most sought after are the common whale of the Greenland seas, which is called the right whale, and the sperm whale of the South Sea. Both kinds are found in the South, but the sperm whale never goes to the North Seas. Both kinds grow to an enormous size, sometimes to seventy feet in length, but there is considerable difference in their appearance, especially about the head. In a former chapter I have partly described the head of a right whale, which has whalebone instead of teeth, with its blowholes on the back of the head. The sperm whale has large white teeth in its lower jaw, 
and none at all in the upper. It has only one blowhole, and that a little one, much farther forward on its head, so that sailors can tell at a great distance what kind of whales they see, simply by their manner of spouting. The most remarkable feature about the sperm whale is the bluntness of its clumsy head, which looks somewhat like a big log with the end sawn square off, and this head is about one-third of its entire body. The sperm whale feeds differently from the right whale. He seizes his prey with his powerful teeth and lives to a great extent on large cuttlefish. Some of them have been seen to vomit lumps of these cuttlefish as long as a whaleboat. He is much fiercer, too, than the right whale, which almost always takes to flight when struck, but the sperm whale will sometimes turn on its foes and smash their boat with a blow of his blunt head or tail. Fighting whales, as they are called, are not uncommon. These are generally old bulls which have become wise from experience and give the whalers great trouble, sometimes carrying away several harpoons and lines. The lower jaw of one old bull of this kind was found to be sixteen feet long, and it had forty-eight teeth, some of them a foot long. A number of scars about his head showed that this fellow had been in the wars. When two bull whales take to fighting, their great effort is to catch each other by the lower jaw, and when locked together they struggle with a degree of fury that cannot be described. It is not often that the sperm whale actually attacks a ship, but there are a few cases of this kind which cannot be doubted. The following story is certainly true, and while it shows how powerful a creature the whale is, it also shows what terrible risk and sufferings the whaleman has frequently to encounter. In the month of August, 1819, the American whaleship Essex sailed from Nantucket for the Pacific Ocean. She was commanded by Captain Pollard. Late in the autumn of the same year, when in latitude 40 degrees of the South Pacific, a shoal or school of sperm whales was discovered, and three boats were immediately lowered and sent in pursuit. The mate's boat was struck by one of the fish during the chase, and it was found necessary to return to the ship to repair damages. While the men were employed at this, an enormous whale suddenly rose quite close to the ship. He was going at nearly the same rate with the ship, about three miles an hour, and the men, who were good judges of the size of whales, thought that it could not have been less than eighty-five feet long. All at once he ran against the ship, striking her bows and causing her to tremble like a leaf. The whale immediately dived and passed under the ship and grazed her keel in doing so. This evidently hurt his back, for he suddenly rose to the surface, about fifty yards off, and commenced lashing the sea with his tail and fins as if suffering great agony. It was truly an awful sight to behold that great monster lashing the sea into foam at so short a distance. In a short time he seemed to recover, and started off at great speed to windward. Meanwhile the men discovered that the blow received by the ship had done her so much damage that she began to fill and settle down at the bows so they rigged the pumps as quickly as possible. While working them, one of the men cried out, "'God have mercy! He comes again!' This was too true. The whale had turned and was now bearing down on them at full speed, leaving a white track of foam behind him. Rushing at the ship like a battering ram, he hit her fair on the weather-bow and stove it in, after which he dived and disappeared. The horrified men took to their boats at once, and in ten minutes— the ship went down. The condition of the men thus left in three open boats far out upon the sea without provisions or shelter was terrible indeed. Some of them perished, and the rest, after suffering the severest hardships, reached a low island called Ducies on the 20th of December. 
It was a mere sandbank which supplied them only with water and sea-fowl. Still, even this was a mercy for which they had reason to thank God. For in cases of this kind, one of the evils that seamen have most cause to dread is the want of water. Three of the men resolved to remain on this sandbank, for dreary and uninhabited though it was, they preferred to take their chance of being picked up by a passing ship rather than run the risks of crossing the wide ocean in open boats, so their companions bid them a sorrowful farewell and left them. But this island is far out of the usual track of ships. The poor fellows have never since been heard of. It was the 27th of December when the three boats left the sandbank with the remainder of the men and began a voyage of 2,000 miles toward the island of Juan Fernandez. The mate's boat was picked up about three months after by the ship Indian of London with only three living men in it. About the same time the captain's boat was discovered by the dolphin of Nantucket with only two men living, and these unhappy beings had only sustained life by feeding on the flesh of their dead comrades. The third boat must have been lost, for it was never heard of, and out of the whole crew of twenty men, only five returned home to tell their eventful story. Before resuming the thread of my narrative, I must not omit to mention that in the head of the sperm whale there is a large cavity, or hole, called the case, which contains pure oil that does not require to be melted, but can be baled at once into casks and stowed away. This is the valuable spermaceti from which the finest candles are made. One whale will sometimes yield fifteen barrels of spermaceti oil from the case of its head. A large fish will produce from eighty to a hundred barrels of oil altogether, sometimes much more. And when whalemen converse with each other about the size of whales, they speak of eighty-barrel fish, and so on. Although I have written much about the fighting powers of the sperm whale, it must not be supposed that whales are by nature fond of fighting. On the contrary, the right whale is a timid creature, and never shows fight except in defense of its young, and the sperm whale generally takes to flight when pursued. In fact, most of the accidents that happen to whalemen occur when the wounded monster is lashing the water in blind terror and agony. The whale has three bitter enemies, much smaller but much bolder than himself, and of these he is terribly afraid. They are the swordfish, the thrasher, and the killer. The first of these, the swordfish, has a strong straight horn or sword projecting from his snout, with which he boldly attacks and pierces the whale. The thrasher is a strong fish, twenty feet long and of great weight. Its method of attack is to leap out of the water on the whale's back and deal it a tremendous blow with its powerful tail. The swordfish and thrasher sometimes act together in the attack, the first stabbing him below and the second belaboring him above, while the whale, unable or too frightened to fight, rushes through the water and even leaps its whole gigantic length into the air in its endeavors to escape. When a whale thus leaps his whole length out of the water, the sailors say he breaches, and breaching is a common practice. They seem to do it often for amusement as well as from terror. But the most deadly of the three enemies is the killer. This is itself a kind of small whale, but it is wonderfully strong, swift, and bold. When one of the killers gets into the middle of a school of whales, the frightened creatures are seen flying in all directions. His mode of attack is to seize his big enemy by the jaw and hold on until he is exhausted and dies. End of chapter 6